You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today we've got Hari Krishnan, who is the head of volatility strategies at SCD Capital Management. So thank you so much for being on the podcast, Hari. It's an uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's my pleasure, actually. And um, I'd like to start by saying how impressed I am by your interviews. Such a young age, I don't even know that I knew what a bond was back then. So uh, thank you. Well done. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, and also before we start, I uh, just wanted to shout out at Hardy Stocks on Twitter, who provided some extremely amazing questions for uh, our interview today. Um, so let's get started. So I wanted to start off by asking you to, you know, sort of give a background of who you are to, you know, our audience who might not be aware. Uh, yeah, okay. I'll do it in reverse chronological order. Um I'm now a volatility manager, long vol dedicated. Mm-hmm. Previously, I was a long vol and relative value options manager. Before that, I ran an FX macro strategy and a diversified um, top-down asset allocation hedge fund. I was in the UK. Uh, before that, I was more of a quant, but I did asset allocation and also option stuff. So uh, I've been around the block. And uh, um, I do have a bit of an academic background, but it's old now, so I won't focus on that. Got it. And, you know, when did you make the shift from sort of going full on into volatility versus, you know, before you used to run an FX macro kind of pitch fund? So, Uh, well, I always had the belief that you learn a lot in the first three years or so in any field, especially if you keep your ears open and you don't try and throw your weight around too much if you just learn. And then the learning curve flattened. So I had several five-year learning curves. Um, I was always interested in options. Uh, But I I lost interest when it became super technical, frankly, because I thought that at some point it just stopped referring to um, reality somehow. And the same thing happens sometimes in math, where uh, a field gets its inspiration from physics and then it drifts off so far it has nothing to do with physics anymore. There's no touchstone or anything. And then it just withers on the vine. Not always, but it can happen. So I was always interested in options, but in using them and thinking about the world in options terms. And so I bounced back and forth in and out. And uh, there you have it. Got it. Got it. And you know, you're also the, the author of The Second Leg Down, which is a pretty awesome book on hedging. And you're also, you're also going to publish uh, Market Tremors, which is a book on preemptive hedging, hedging before you know, we, see a, we see a collapse. So you know, is there anything that you wanted to say about the books that you've authored? Yes, uh, the first book was the best I could do at the time. I'm glad it was well-received. I only wish the typeface had been bigger, at least in the print version. I think people would have enjoyed it more. I know I would have, and um, but it's a bit patchy in parts, and I thought I wanted to smooth it out in the second book. There's always a fine line between providing enough good stuff, some juicy stuff, and not making it too formal mm-hmm. or too imposing. But by the same token, writing in a kind of a fluid style, 
And um, I solicited Ash Bennington's help, especially for the introduction on this, just to try and lure people in a little bit more before I um, um, slap them around with some technical stuff again. So there you have it. Got it. So now I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about you know, your work on volatility. So now in the second in, in your book, Second Letdown, you said that extreme markets are not straightforward extrapolations of normal markets. So now how does one go around identifying these kind of regimes where you know we're in extreme markets as opposed to normal markets? You know, what do you look at? What do you track? And you know, how do you go about identifying this? I don't remember writing that. I'm not sure exactly what I meant, but uh, I can tell you what the book was about, which was um, basically it was it was based on the premise that no one wants to hedge in quiet markets. I mean, some people think ahead, but many people don't. And then there's a bit of a shock and people are scrambling to buy insurance. And by then the cost of insurance is high. So most people say you should buy your insurance early, but let's say that you don't get those mandates. So you're a professional and you don't get those mandates. What can you do to help? I mean, how can you stick on hedges or defensive structures that are relatively inexpensive compared to just going out and buying index puts, let's say, S&P mm -hmm. index puts. And so the book was a prescription for doing that and also for transitioning from one type of hedge into another as conditions went from bad to really bad to awful. And the emphasis there was just monetization. A big problem with hedging is in a quiet market, you can buy vol cheaply. At least some would believe that. Um, but how do you take profits? Then you have to do market timing or else have some other scheme for changing your hedge over time. And that's what that book was about. Um, so it was trying to allow people to be able to do something no matter how bad conditions were. And you can think of it in terms of the Greeks. Uh, it's almost as though you're transitioning from vega hedging, where you're betting that vol will go up, to gamma hedging, where you're saying, I don't want to pay up anymore for options premia. Uh, instead, I want to uh, block out unpalatable downside scenarios at relatively low cost. That's it, really. Got it. Got it. Yeah. You know, another question that came about was, now what's the dynamic that's changed the most since you've actually published a book? Oh, the tail wagging the dog thing is bigger than it used to be. It used to be that every quant believed that the only way to price an option was to have a good handle on the underlying, on how risky the underlying was, as well as its level and interest rates and so on. Now it seems like there's this complex interaction between the options markets and the underlying. And it's almost as though retail can get more involved now and be more dangerous to the institutional side because if they buy deep out of the money options, the potential leverage in those trades makes them a significant portion of the market. So they can fight back against the market, well, not against the market making community, but they can fight against the value investor who wants to short a stock based on its- uh, Fundamentals. It's, it's fundamentals in quotes, yeah. Um, that's a big change. Of course, Mike Green, I think, was on your show. He's talked a lot about the impact of passive investing and how passive investing, on the assumption that um, equity flows and equity performance are related, so fund flows and performance have a correlation, then that should also induce momentum. And if the popular stuff gets more allocation, 
given that these ETFs don't hold a big cash balance, uh, they're just buying in proportion to size. So that should exaggerate momentum effects. And then you have the various other stories of pensions and so on that like volatility control and other strategies where risk is a target. It's an input to sizing positions. And what happens is that when markets go up, risk comes off. And so the sizing gets bigger and bigger, inducing even more momentum until the cycle breaks, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, you've also talked about you know uh, another sort of tail wagging the dog kind of phenomenon, which is well, not you, uh, but other people like say Michael Green. He's talked about you know how passive flows uh, have influenced you know the uh, for example passive flows into say SPY influences the way the S and P five hundred moves. And you've talked about how you know, this ETF liquidity mismatch phenomenon exists. So this has it gotten better or has it gotten worse than it was a few years ago? Uh, the more things go up, the more dangerous it gets at some level. The more money that flows into this stuff, the more dangerous the situation gets, even though it's not observable in realized vol. I mean, the classic case is imagine a, a world with one asset, the S&P 500, let's say. Um, and it's a collateral-based lending economy. So as the index goes up, people start making money. So the value of their collateral goes up. So then they can borrow more and they can stick it right back into that only asset. And so it goes up even more. And that's fine, but it, the indices become more pro-cyclical and a tiny or a moderate shock to the downside will cause the thing to reverse rapidly um, up the stairs and down the lift or elevator. Yeah. <laughs> got it, got it. And do you have any thoughts on trading equity options around, you know, earnings releases for, you know, upside or downside surprises as a catalyst? Uh, I don't do that personally, but what I would say is that in the second book, my goal wasn't to say that, oh, realized volatility tends to decline before an earnings announcement because the market's waiting for a almost binary data point because the options market will price that in. Now, do they price it in enough? That's a judgment call, or it's a based on quantitative thinking. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't do that stuff so much as look at situations where complacency is high because realized vol has come down in this pro-cyclical loop. And so implied vol is also lower than it should be. Uh, earning stuff, it's, it's really interesting stuff. It's not something that I feel strong enough, strongly enough to weigh in on. And, you know, do you have an approach to hedging, you know, the right tail of distribution as opposed to the left tail? And you know, how is that different when you think about it? Right tail hedging in some ways is easier, but let me, let me give you a bit of the lay of the land on this one. I hope I don't, I don't uh, misstate it, but most people don't come to me saying, I have a giant, I have a $1 billion short equity index book, I needed to hedge it because I think the market could melt up. So I don't usually get those mandates. Now, if I ran an absolute return fund, and I think uh, people like Jerry Hayworth have done this over the years, they want to exploit the right and the left tail if they think there's underpricing. Right tail hedging in a way is easier in the modern, in the current regime because um, the risk-free rate tends to be lower than the dividend yield mm -hmm. for many indices. So, or the cap-weighted dividend yield. So if you go and buy long-dated call options, 
the forward will start rolling up toward the strike. Um, this may sound technical, but that can offset some of your time decay. So there are ways to hedge the right tail. No one seems to give me those mandates. So uh, uh, I haven't done much of it, but there are many plays. There are inflation, reflation plays that you can put on of, of various types. And I think right tail is basically um, a play on either monetary inflation or this kind of feedback loop, this pro-cyclical feedback loop that causes things to go uh, up parabolically. And uh, yeah. Got it. In, in the second leg, Dan, you know, you also, you know, talk about, you also pretty much imagine or you backtest, you know, buying and rolling four week puts on the VXX, a long option strategy with a positive drift. So, you know, for listeners who may not be aware, could you, number one, just define what positive drift is and could you talk about whether the strategy relies more on the shape of the futures curve than moves in the spot price? Ah, okay. Well, usually people think of drift in terms of time decay. Mm -hmm. I'm saying this wrong. I'm saying this incorrectly. Let me start again. Uh, the the VIX put buying strategy that is in the book, which I'm not, it's a bit hazy in my mind. I think it was based on the idea that the term structure for VIX futures has historically been very steep. And what that means is that you can make assertions about, let's say if the spot price, if the spot VIX doesn't move, where will the futures be at specific times in the future? In, in specific times forward. And if the curve is very steep, if the futures curve is very steep, then the futures should start drifting down fairly aggressively if the spot doesn't move. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that a put, which is whose delta and whose value is based off the forward, that put should increase in value if the spot doesn't move. And so you get a trade where you're buying puts, which has negative theta, but you're offsetting that cost with the roll dynamics of the futures curve. Now, there are many traders who were doing this uh, in the early to mid-teens in size, especially when the curve became went into severe contango. And it was a great trade because you could never get margined out. You had bounded risk. And it was counterintuitive enough that people wouldn't initially wouldn't think to do it because they think, oh, buying options is a bleed. But here you had such a pronounced curve that you actually could stick on long options trades where you got paid to put them on. And I think that's what I was referring to there. But you know, I tend to jump around a bit. So uh, that's my impression. Yeah. And recently in the market, we've started seeing, you know, the dynamic of meme stocks, you know, AMC, GME, et cetera. So I just wanted to get your take as a, you know, as an options and a volatility specialist. And now are we just seeing fatter tails in shorter time periods or, you know, what's going on? What's your take? How are you looking at it? Uh, I think it's, it's really put into prominence the idea that um, market makers can have an, an amazing impact on price action. It's one of those things where if people you know, often people think, well, options are safe because you can, if you buy options, because you can only burn the premium paid. But if you took all your money and stuck it on a single option, you could lose all of that. Fine. That's a, a bit of a silly point. But the, the more interesting point is that if people are making speculative fear of missing out lottery bets to the upside on stocks that may appear to be high, 
severely overpriced, market makers have to take the other side of those trades. Now, they'll jack up the volatility that they require in order to sell you that inventory. But then they have a short position. And if the market starts shooting up toward the strike and they choose to delta hedge, which they would be wise to do, they have to start buying the stock as well to cover their risk because their business, should, at least in theory, is not taking a punt on direction. And so a lot of this options underlying interaction has driven this, but it's also just a new a new zeitgeist or something. It's a new um, feeling that, in, that probably younger investors have that um, many things are broken and they keep hearing the old guys like me or the older guys like me saying, oh, the central banks are doing all the wrong things. Oh, the system is broken. Oh, in my day, valuation mattered. You know, there were various ratios that you could count on and they had predictable outcomes. I think a lot of people stop believing this. They think that um, not that the, that the market is rigged is a bit of an oversimplification, but that the people who are giving all of these pieces of sage advice are partly responsible for some of the problems that we have today. And so it's a rejection of that as well. And uh, how, can I, how can I criticize that? Um, it is what it is. I think it, that there will be a price to be paid but it's not for me to say when or by who or for who. Got it, got it. And, you know, earlier in this interview, you just said that, you know, if you look for where, you know, people are complacent and, mm -hmm. and try to take advantage of those situations. So, you know, what does risk mean to you? And uh, how do you, uh, and so, you know, in today's market environment, you know, where are you seeing complacency and where you're really seeing opportunity? I think there's a lot of short-term complacency in the options markets. Uh, Volatility has really come down at the front end. In the back end, mm -hmm. people still seem somewhat wary, which suggests that there is a demand for protecting one year out or even six months out and beyond. Uh, the term structure of volatility is pretty steep, at least for equity indices. Mm -hmm. I think in the rate space, vol is just depressed as it has been. And I think there, the, there is a conviction that the curve will never be allowed to go beyond certain bounds, at least up to the middle, the belly of the, of, of the yield curve. Further out, maybe there are inflation bets being made in more size, but I think the belief is that the short end can and will be controlled by central bank activity if things should get out of hand. Whether that's true or not, I, I do not have a view. And so what does risk mean to you? So how do you, how do you go about you know, perceiving and looking at it? That's such a deep and broad question. I could go on forever, but uh, it's not volatility. Now, if I were the only one who used value at risk in the world, or if you and I were the only ones, or if our friends were the only ones, that would be fine. We'd probably get some benefit out of sizing our positions according to the realized risk that had been observed in them. But think of the other extreme in the paradigm, or uh, the other pole where everyone uses value risk. Everyone uses exactly the same risk model. That's highly destabilizing because everyone is going to be getting out of similar positions at almost exactly the same time. And so this feedback loop of wide consensus, I think is dangerous. I think any risk model has to have a positioning slash leverage adjustment to it, which is kind of what Market Tremors is about. Mm 
Mm -hmm. So imagine a market that where every tiny dip is bought, but the agents in the market are becoming more and more levered over time. Volatility is converging to zero, but the implied leverage is blowing up. That's risky. That to me is risky. Um, why is it risky? Because any random shock in the network, anywhere in that, in that stylized case, will cause massive selling, a cascade of selling. And so my view on risk is that risk is, and I learned a bit of this from Michael Howell at, at Crossborder, but it's a combination of observed volatility, options implied stuff, positioning, and some assessment of the credit or leverage situation. Got it. And you know, uh, you know, a couple of times in this interview, Valtteri mentioned that you know you've talked about central banks. So could you sort of explain you know, the dynamic of central banks and you know how how you're viewing them, uh, you know, in today's market? Oh, I don't. I'm not really a pontificator on central banks. Well, the thing I do tend to do is I tend to just look at the balance sheet stuff. Now it used to be that um, many people analyzed Fed funds rates and so on, or short term. Um, policy influenced rates globally. But now with their being pegged as, and the basic idea was that when rates were cut, that would uh, create growth, steepening of the yield curve, increased bank profits, increased willingness of banks to take risk, possibly more inflation and so on. And when the short end was jacked up, the reverse would occur. But now we have the short end depressed. So we have to look at other, other um, elements here. And the, the, main, the crudest one or the most direct one is just to look at the balance sheet size before you look at composition. So you can say, well, what do central bank balance sheets do over time? Well, they grow. They do grow because more paper money is issued and released and various other things increase according to a fairly deterministic mechanical schedule. Fine. But there are things that are done around that. So central bank balance sheet changes relative to trend are a significant thing to worry about. And um, it is true that jawboning, what the central bankers say is, is quite important and many investors pay attention to it. But I tend to be more primitive in this space because I'm doing other things as well. And I just look at the balance sheet itself. Mm -hmm. And if the balance sheet increases sharply above trend, historically in the median case, that's been good for uh, credit spread contraction and supportive of equities. Now you only get reliable outcomes if you start looking at cases where the central bank increased their balance sheet, let's say year on year by over, or over the over a six month trailing window by over 10 or 15%. Then you start getting somewhat predictable outcomes. The data set is small, but then you wind up with situations where if they need to increase the size of their assets by 30%, to get a, to support a uh, risk off um, event, to, to, to block it out um, or to bound it, then, um, you know, at 800 billion, that's fine, 30%. At 5 trillion, it's not looking so fine. At 7 trillion, it's looking dangerous because now you're looking above 10 trillion and so on. Now, some people might argue it doesn't matter. There's no natural bound to how big the Fed's balance sheet can be. But my thing is always to think of it a bit holistically. And uh, 
I'm not going to come on and talk about climate change or the lack thereof or anything, but I view the climate as an organism. I view the uh, financial system to some degree as an organism. If you start doing things, if you start conducting experiments without precedent on that scale, um, how can you say that you're controlling everything? It seems to be incredible complacency. Now, that's just blabbing from my side, but my the basic takeaway is that I think central banks do can and do improve median outcomes, but cannot control um, potentially the unintended consequences in terms of their currencies, their yield curves, and their risky asset markets. But I look at asset growth or contraction relative to trend as an indicator. It's a slow moving one. I'm not going to be generating signals every week. It's slow. Got it. And uh, I wonder if you've read a book called The Rise of Kerry, which sort of talks about central banks and you know how they contribute to suppressing volatility in financial markets. And I wanted to ask if you had any views on that dynamic. That's a nice book. That's Kevin Coldiron and the two Lees, yeah. I think. Well, they put their finger on it. I mean, the S&P 500, which used to be less liquid than, say, 10-year note futures, has now become the de facto proxy, maybe along with crypto tokens, but for risk, right? Or for the leverage trade. It's just an expression of the leverage trade or where we are in the leverage cycle. And so it's lost all, not all, but it's lost a lot of connection with everything else. If people have access to credit um, and they and they are uh, optimistic or complacent enough to exercise that, then uh, the S&P will go up and other S&P risk on proxies will also go up. And that's what you're looking at. And I think they put their finger on this and the way they've described how the changes to the structural changes to the marketplace have put us in this position. I, I think it's an excellent book. Um, it has, certainly has my recommendation. Got it, got it. So um, another thing that I wanted to ask you is, um, so what, what do you personally think actually gives you your edge in the markets? Oh, I have, I have a number of uh, reasons why I hope I have an edge. One of them is that I like strategy, since I do long vol, long volatility, a lot of my strategies don't backtest in a way that systems would like. So imagine that I ran a machine learning fund, and I, I, I know a little bit about machine learning, but not, I'm not an expert. There are lots of things you do when you're trying to find fine structure in a data set. So you identify various features, trends, uh, patterns of movement, and so on. And you try and find um, features that are predictive in some high dimensional space. You know, there are lots of potential configurations. And you do that, and you're basically trying to come up with strategies that generate high average returns, not high compounded returns. And you're also trying to throw out or Windsorize, whatever the phrase is, the outliers that are going to drag your machine learning system away from focusing on the corpus of median or, or non-extreme data where the structure might exist. Now I've, I've gone into the off the deep end here in a sense, but the idea is that all the stuff I'm looking at on a long vol from a long vol in a long vol paradigm doesn't fit that. It's basically stuff that loses money. Uh, a lot of the time and hopefully makes a loss 
if things go my way. Now, so I have two goals. One is to manage bleed without regard for consistency of losses, which is diametrically opposed to what the systematic strategies do. And then I have another skill set, which is to create maximum convexity if something does happen. So my process is far different from someone who's looking through masses of data, trying to find fine structure over time. I'm saying I have two jobs. One is to be a bleed minimizer, and the other is to create as much convexity as I can within that framework. I think that's an edge. And the fact that I have a, a, a life where I'm trying to be a thought leader to some degree and do other things that are related to my job but don't require that I sit and stare at a screen is very beneficial because it reduces the amount of overtrading. It allows me to sit on positions longer and play the play for the big, big win while just being conscious about cost. So it's, it's more than my being better than other people. I don't think that's true by any means. And other people have, many other groups have more resources than I do, but I'm playing a different game. I'm not optimizing a, a sharp ratio and make, trying to make sure that uh, I've done everything correctly from a um, statistical modeling standpoint. Instead, I'm saying I have two jobs, bleed minimization and setting up highly convex bets. And I think that's a different paradigm. There are more people who do it now than used to, but it's not that popular to do it because the incentive structures in our business don't completely lend themselves to that kind of behavior. And that's fine with me uh, because the, if there are not too many people in the game, it increases the size that I can trade and the opportunity set that I have. So, you know, when you talk about convexity, you know, it's sort of like maximizing, you know, the asymmetry of a trade. So how do you go about doing that? And do you have any tips for our audience who would like to do the same? Well, it depends on what market you're in. Um, I was chatting with a colleague today and some every several years, there are trades in the credit markets where you buy CDS that have a long uh, credit default swap or insurance against um, corporate bond defaults. You can buy it with a long tenor, a long maturity at a very low cost. Maybe you pay five or 10 basis points a year to protect stuff that will just go from 100 to 10 if things get really bad. So you have massive payout potential there. Um, now in the listed option space, it's really a trade-off between volatility and, um, well, I shouldn't say a trade-off. It's when vol is low, you get implicitly, you get a lot more potential gamma in your trades than when vol is high, unless you go very short dated in which you're just making a pure gamma bet. So if you're buying three months to maturity options, let's say with a delta of 10 and vol is low, A, the strike will be closer to the spot and B, you get a lot, you can buy a lot more per uh, for a fixed budget. And so implied volatility and skew have a strong relationship to the amount of convexity you can get on a standard trade. The downside with that, and again, we talk about that in market tremors, is twofold. One is kind of, I, I think you and Sinclair may have said this, but um, sometimes when vol is low, when realized vol is low, the spread between implied and realized makes buying implied a bit expensive. I don't deny that. Um, uh, the other thing is that when vol is low, it tends to be sticky. And stickiness is a problem. And I give an example of that in, in Market Tremors where I say, imagine that you're waiting for a friend. So you're 
at the train station or something. If your friend is five minutes late, what are the odds that your friend will come in the next five minutes? Okay, they are what they are. But if your friend hasn't come in an hour and, you, and doesn't text, what are the odds that your friend will come in the next five minutes? They're actually lower. Right. So the longer your odds that over a fixed time interval, the event will occur. And that's one difficulty with, with long vol in um, quiet markets. It's theoretically the right thing to do. If you can isolate the Vega component, it's fantastic. And that's where you get the most bang for the buck. So Vega and Gamma have a close relationship. I'm sort of conflating them a bit, but maximum convexity for vanilla trades with medium maturities tends to coincide with maximum Vega per unit paid, uh, per unit of cost. And you know, a lot of option traders talk about sort of, you know, the inefficiencies provided by these assumptions in the Black-Scholes model. So you know, it might be a dumb question to ask, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. So now how do you go about thinking you know, of inefficiencies in the overall options market, especially when it comes to you know thinking about the assumptions made with the Black-Scholes model? Okay, that's, that's actually a very good question. Um, I think that, that if you look at the entire surface, or if you look at the skew for fixed maturity, the market is telling you what they expect the distribution to be of that asset over that time period. So if the maturity over which you're looking at the S&P skew is three months, uh, then the market is telling you something about the three month forward distribution of returns as it expects it to be. Mm -hmm. um, that is Black-Scholes extended because there shouldn't be a skew in, in textbook Black-Scholes. But given that there is a skew, and given that Black-Scholes is the converter from price to implied fall, um, you get a handle on the distribution. And if your belief is that the distribution is different, then you can stick on a trade. Now, how would you come to the conclusion that it's actually, it might actually might be different? That's complex, but you can do things like look at historical distributions. You can look at conditional distributions. In other words, if the market, if the S&P went down 10% in the next three weeks, how would that affect the forward distribution from there and get a more uh, refined view of mm -hmm. what the true distribution should look like? Because our distribution is actually, over three months, is actually a, a large set of conditional distributions after one month or after two months. So you need all of that to align. And if you have some notion as to how much leverage is in the system, and how people are positioned, then you can say, oh, the market's got conditional distribution wrong. And one simple example is let's imagine a market where, again, a single market where it's trading at 100. Mm -hmm. And there's a giant whale in the market who has an explicit stop sell order at 95. So they're going to dump. Now, they, sh they shouldn't make it explicit, but let's just say they did. So they're going to dump a huge quantity, let's say 20% of the open interest in the futures at 95. Uh, but the, the skew isn't refer, reflecting that. In other words, there's no great pickup in perceived risk for the market down three to 5%, let's say. Then you have a trade because you know that there's a pressure point in the market where risk is underpriced. Yep. And um, 
you may have a view on the basis of that. So can, looking at the conditional distribution is important. Now it's not a, it's not a layup because if market makers are, are, especially in the options markets, if they are forced to take the other side of the trade, they're going to adjust the price. But in the futures example, I think it's pretty clear that if there's a giant stop order uh, at a fixed distance above or below, that should have an impact on the, on the distribution because if the price gets anywhere near there, it's gonna blow through, at least over a short horizon. And you might wonder, well, is that a stable risk estimate? Because let's say it goes down 4%, but there'll be other people in the ecosystem, other agents who will be incentivized to drive it down there. So I think if you have a handle on credit and positioning, um, it can improve your your conditional risk estimates. Got it. Got it. And one more thing that you do is, you know, you're sort of knowledgeable about, you know, so many topics. So, you know, if anyone goes and just looks at your Twitter by, you know, there's macro, there's positioning, um, you, know, you talk about complex systems as well. So how do you sort oh, yeah. of, yeah. So how do you sort of, you know, blend, you know, the quantitative side of things with, you know, being more discretionary because you know macro and complex system they tend to be more discretionary as opposed to you know quantitative or systematic. Well, I used to do systematic macro, to be honest, um, but of course there was a huge amount of discretion in terms of deciding what variables were important and this and that. That would be true for any system. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think there was a question in the Twitter feed about this. How am I so in quotes knowledgeable yeah. about so many things? I don't know that. I think that's probably an over, overly complimentary. I, what I do know is that I get a B in my bonus every, every so often, and there's a problem that I want to work on. And I'm selfish and single-minded about working on it until I feel like I got it. And then I kind of lose interest and think about doing something else. So I have a, a few spikes of knowledge and then anything else I can sound semi-coherent about within finance because somehow it connects to the stuff I did know. Now, complex systems was an area that I studied in my PhD. Um, I didn't call it that. We looked at um, the destabilizing impact of delays in physiological systems. So if um, you looked at cancer or if you looked at cell production, blood cell production in the spinal cord, um, there was one thesis that said you could get wild variations in patients who were ill not because the production process was flawed, but because your body's signal wasn't properly, uh, your body wasn't sending the right signal to the bone marrow as to how much to produce based right. on the concentration in the bloodstream. And so there would be overshoots, a bit like a, a uh, drunken sailor walking back to a hotel or something at night where they can't go straight, they just keep overshooting left and right. And, um, um, the delay factor was really important to me, but I got I struggled with it because um, if something appeared in the past, but there's no, it's unobservable. It, so it was it was observable five months ago, but it's showing no effects four months ago. What's going on? How can this delay suddenly reappear and have an impact? I don't know the answer to that, but what I do know is that delays do, if if. Delays can induce cycles and also instability in systems if, if um, um, in, under certain conditions. And I think that's a central banking problem as well, because if you forget the, what the central banks say and how they're controlling the markets with what they say, the transmission me mechanism for credit and increase in credit 
is not instantaneous. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, banks are not going to lend at the very instant that their reserves are topped up. Yep. So there is a delay. And so they're trying to fudge that. Or Again, I don't want to be a vocal critic. I don't have a strong view, but this uh, communication effort is an attempt to minimize that delay in what is inherently a complex system. And okay, it has worked so far, but in reality, credit creation takes a while. Yep. So I, that's where I, I'm interested in the complex system side. I'm not really knowledgeable enough or focused enough on sort of the Santa Fe school of complexity and this and that to say that I have this holistic view of all markets in a complex systems paradigm. I'm more interested in stability when parameters are varied. So their levers, like central banks have levers, they have two main policy levers, um, balance sheet expansion and rate variations, uh, you know, policy rate variations. Are those stabilizing or destabilizing and when? That's where my complex systems interest. Uh, that's where the rubber meets the road because that is at the essence of chaos theory in some sense. It's you have a system, it moves around in some way. There's a parameter that is crucial. And if you vary that thing, um, sometimes you get dramatically different dynamics. And that's what I'm interested in. Got it, got it. So, you know, on a completely different note, uh, mm-hmm. which are one of the things you've mentioned on Twitter, you know, similar mm-hmm. to Jeff Bezos is that you focus on regret minimization and, you know, Jeff Bezos left a very you know lucrative job at a hedge fund or Wall Street um, to go and find Amazon, and you know he's been very very successful at it. So, what is regret? Regret, and what does regret minimization mean to you? Wow, that's a good one too. Uh, I think he was at D. Sure, maybe uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, for me, it's more philosophical. It's sort of like, I like to make good decisions every day. I don't always succeed in doing that. So I really focus on clarity every day Mm -hmm. uh, and deciding what it is that I really want to do and doing it accurately, not being a perfectionist, but doing it accurately. And when I do that, I often fail at this, but when I do it consistently, I feel like I'm minimizing regrets in my life because everything I'm doing, at least work-wise, let's say, is of a quality that I'm satisfied with because my mind was engaged enough in it and clear enough to um, do the big, to have the big picture correctly solved. You know, I regret minimization can be as simple as, oh, whoops, I traded 10,000 lots instead of 100 lots. Now, of course, you have filters that prevent you from doing that with systems, but that's a form of regret minimization that can be controlled through focusing on the big picture making sure you get the big things right and um, not messing up, um, not being so focused on minutia uh, that you get lost in that. So for me, it is optionality as well. It's uh, sometimes taking a risk, um, um, but viewing yourself as transcending any corporate limitation or any ideological limitation that might be imposed on you by the people around you. Now, I'm not saying that I'm a renegade, I'm not, but I am, I do focus on being as independent as I can be in, in, in my work life, at least. Um, 
And so regret minimization is making sure that my voice, my brand, my approach is not distorted in some way that makes that would make me feel uncomfortable with what I produced or what I traded or the ideas that I presented or the people I worked with. That to me is the core, the core thing. Um, so it's not a money-making scheme so much as a way to uh, be as genuine as I can be in my ideas and in the way I execute them. Yeah, yeah, got it. And, I think, and you know, jumping back to, you know, fall and markets, I uh, know one thing that I'm curious is, you know, as someone who works, you know, being long volatility, how do you go about actually sizing your positions? And, you know, what is the, how do you go thinking about that? Well, uh, sizing is a bit strange in the option space. I mean, if for a, let's go from plain vanilla hedging to more complex long vol. Plain vanilla hedging is, as my old colleague used to say, fire insurance, which is you pay the insurance. I sit down and try and find the best strikes and maturities to buy. I'm pretty much long puts or long put spreads if it's an S&P mandate or a Eurostox mandate or whatever. And I try and create definable payout scenarios for clients where they have a good idea as to how much they'll make given a uh, fixed sized move over a fixed sized horizon in the index. Now there is some path dependency, fine. Uh, that is um, a budget constraint problem. I'm given a certain amount of money to work with to hedge a certain notional amounts. Let's say it's 3% per year. So if it's a $10 million account, I get, I have 300,000 to spend in premium per year. There are various ways in which I can allocate that premium, but I'm trying to create, to find the cheapest places to buy insurance given what the market's giving me. So there's no, there's no market, there's no nothing in that. There's just a fixed budget and off she goes, right? Um, the more complex long vol stuff is sized differently. When I, whenever I've run a futures component, I've used traditional CTA techniques, even though I spoke out against risk targeting. I've done it because it was market convention. Mm -hmm. I tried not to use the same levels that may be common in the industry, but uh, I would do that. For more complex options trades, it's more a um, payoff versus cost trade-off. So you can almost think of it as a betting, betting system where you're trying to get as much payout as you possibly can per unit of uh, premium outlay or risk that you take. Uh, does that fit into Kelly? Kind of, but not completely. I know that that was raised a few times. Um, Kelly's very good. It's very good. It, it does, it's solving the right problem. The only thing I would say is, um, um, intuitively, would I prefer a 60-40 bet where I have 60% odds of winning and a 40% odds of losing with one -to -one, a one-to-one -one payout, uh, which should give me about a 20% allocation, if I'm not mistaken, off Kelly? Or right. would I prefer a, um, a, an option uh, structure that has, say, a 10% chance of paying out but pays 200 to 1? Which am I going to put more in? I don't think the 60-40 bet's that great in relative terms. The edge is, is I mean, in some sense, the edge is massive, but mm -hmm. it's still a 60-40 bet. Yeah. 
whereas the lottery ticket feature of the other one does mean I don't need to put that much in. I accept that, but I don't think it's a juicier trade than the other one. I don't think the 60-40 is as juicy as the other one. So um, just that sort of uh, feeling comes into play as well. But to be fair, uh, for separately managed accounts, I'm largely driven by clients' goals as well. So it's an interactive process with the client where they set the goals. And my job is, as I said, uh, premium outlay management plus maximum defense. Yeah, and uh, my job is to find the right strikes and the right structures and the right regimes to play. But I'm constrained by what the client is looking to gain. Right, right, got it. Is there anything that you know we haven't covered that you would like to say or you would like to cover? Uh, well, I hope I hope people get some value out of this. I hope uh, that I will be out on the road. I mean, I was keen to do this to present the second book. I have a slide deck. Um, I'd be delighted to supply some of that on request. I'm often available on Twitter, although a bit unreliable. And uh, please, if you have any questions, and Hardy Stocks has gone out of his, his, his or her way, I'd say his, but to uh, raise quite very good questions, many other people have as well. Um, if I can build my brand and help people, life is good. So, um, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was awesome to have you. My pleasure. Be well. Thanks. Thank you for listening to market champions to never miss an episode make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time